It's two years ago this month that I moved to Kansas City, fresh out of seminary and excited to join this church in ministry. I dove right in. In my first week on staff, I went to St. Louis on our middle school mission trip for four days of serving, learning, and exploring in a different city. These trips are my favorite. They're memorable and transformative, but they're also exhausting. That summer, I'd already been on two mission trips and went to a week-long church camp, and I was tired. I knew from the outset of our trip to St. Louis that I would have to stay aware of my energy levels and how they affected my leadership. I was tested within an hour of leaving the church. I don't think we were even on I-70 yet. When someone piped up from the back seat and asked, are we there yet? For the first time, I felt in my bones just how irritating that question can be. I'm pretty sure whoever made it was just asking a question to make a joke, but there's something about that question that strikes a deep reality about traveling. We all know the angst of being on a late leg of a long trip and wanting to be there already. Ask any of the high schoolers who went on our mission trip to Ecuador last summer. After the 10th hour of our layover in Miami before flying to Quito, we wanted to be there. Are we there yet? Packs its punch in those moments when we desperately want to be where we're going and don't want to be reminded that we're not there yet. But I think this desire to be there is something that manifests in more ways than a question from an exasperated 13-year-old who doesn't want to sit on an uncomfortable church van any longer. I've been asking it about my own life recently. While writing the sermon, I moved into a new apartment. And for the first time, I'm renting a space that I want to live in for more than a year or two. Am I there yet? Or when we're recovering from an injury or sickness and well on our way through the process of healing, it's easy for us to want to just be done, to be healed, even when we know we have a bit more ways to go. Are we there yet? And look at how our country is dealing with the ongoing pandemic. Recent weeks have given us opportunities to connect face to face, for which I'm grateful. But it's also shown me how easy it is for us to pretend that we're there and to forget that COVID-19 isn't over. With every step we take to reemerge and reopen, it's like we're asking, are we there yet? And I think too about how we talk about racial justice in this country and how much we want to be there already. In recent weeks, we've seen or felt the depth of pain that comes from how real racism still is. And many of us have invested and recommitted to confront the problems of racism in our society. Yet it's so easy to ask after we read another article, put our name on another petition, or post something on social media, are we there yet? Now, it's natural to want to be there, to be more evolved, to be finished, to have arrived. It's an ancient desire, something we see reflected in Jesus' own day. Jesus was born in ancient Israel under the booming Roman Empire, a complex, well-oiled machine that controlled up to a fourth of the earth's population in Jesus' time. Jesus lived in the time we now call Pax Romana or Roman peace, a 200-year period in which there was a surprising amount of social stability. The Roman Empire was proud of itself, and Roman leaders thought they were there, ruling in perfect power with the full blessing of the gods above. Yet things weren't that peaceful. There was a brilliant sense of culture in that day. People threw lavish dinner parties, decorated grand courtyards with statues of Roman leaders and gods. 
People pursued hobbies and arts, and at least those in the upper classes experienced social mobility and could work hard for more power and prestige. But when we look closer, we see that the rich and elite, who were the only ones to really enjoy any of this lavish culture, only made up a small fraction of the population. Historians propose that only 3% of people in the Roman Empire had the wealth and freedom to experience this rich culture. Another 17% of people would have been a sort of middling group, people like merchants and traders who had found some surplus of resources. But 80% of the Roman Empire, four out of every five people, were poor. Some had just enough money and food to survive, while a huge chunk, 25% of the entire population, never knew how or if they'd make ends meet. And Jesus speaks directly to Jewish people, like himself, who had long lived at the mercy of other kingdoms and empires. Some saw the Roman Empire as more forgiving. They rewarded cooperation and let Jewish people practice their religion and maintain cultural norms as long as Rome could maintain political control and heavily tax the Jewish people. Some Jewish social and religious leaders benefited from this and gained power in ways they hadn't in centuries past. Yes, they were still under Roman occupation, and most ancient Israelites were still poor, but some had found ways to acquire power and control. This is the world to which Jesus speaks in Matthew 11. Those with stability and peace assumed that it was shared by everyone, when in reality most of the population was far from being there. They felt like they were there and asked collectively, aren't we there yet? Our scripture today is a bold response to those who thought they were there. Jesus compares them to children playing games, ignoring the serious business of others struggling to survive. He condemns them for rejecting and silencing the challenging messages of John the Baptist and himself. And then Jesus rebuked cities to which he had traveled and done ministry because they had a chance to repent and didn't. He owns in on Capernaum, the city he had moved to when he began his ministry in Matthew 4. Jesus is not kind to his hometown. Will you be exalted to heaven, he asks? No, you will be brought down. On the day of judgment, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom than for you. Jesus here is referring to a story in Genesis that tells of how Sodom is destroyed for their wickedness by a rain of sulfur and fire from heaven. In the story, two angels visit a man of God named Lot who had moved to the city and warn him to flee before it's too late. He does, but only after the angels are nearly sexually assaulted by a mob of men from Sodom. Because the angels are identified as men, some have used this story to say that God condemns homosexuality. Yet that's not what the story condemns. It condemns Sodom's violent inhospitality to God's strangers in their midst. Later, a Hebrew prophet denounces the people of Sodom for having pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but not aiding the poor and needy. Jesus brings up Sodom in Matthew 11 precisely for this reason, to condemn the cities he's been to for their inhospitality to Jesus and their complicity in the evils of the Roman Empire. He says that his own hometown will fare worse than Sodom because they thought they were there, living with prosperous ease. All the while, they failed to listen to God speaking to them through God's own Son. 
So what about us? Do we think we're there while we're refusing to listen to the people through whom God is speaking? Do we face a fate worse than supernatural sulfuric fire? And even if we do acknowledge that we're not there, how do we change? How on earth can we ever get there? After his brutal condemnation of Capernaum and other cities, Jesus thanks God who has hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and has revealed them to infants. Huh? Now, Jesus isn't talking about actual infants, but is talking about people who have become willing to be born into a new way of being. In the Roman world, babies weren't simply seen as sweet and innocent. Scholar Warren Carter says that children were more often viewed with suspicion as a threat to civic order. They were weak, rational, ignorant, unpredictable, of little present value, but significant for the future in terms of who they may become. This is who Jesus wants his listeners to be. This is the there, so it seems. He wants those who follow him to not function under the wisdom and intelligence that ruled their day and benefited only a few while too many went poor and hungry. I recently heard a civil rights leader say on a panel that we don't need more charitable solutions to structural problems. We need change. We need to change the rules. And this is what Jesus is saying. He wants his followers to become something more vulnerable and dangerous to an unjust civic order. He wants them to risk their sense of ease and to partner with God in changing the rules so that the world may be a different and better place for all people. This feels so impossible, though. To become like infants, to change the rules of society, can't we just be there yet? If we start all over again, how will we ever be? One of my favorite books tells of a young woman who is brave enough to become like an infant and start all over again. Lauren Olamina is the main character in Octavia Butler's 1993 novel, Parable of the Sower. The story begins in dystopian America in 2024. Lauren is in her late teens, living in a town in Southern California that's become walled off in protection from the chaos of the world outside. After climate change, economic disaster, and a rampant new drug that turns people into violent pyromaniacs, there are few safe places to live outside of walled towns like Lauren's. Lauren's dad is the pastor of the main church in town, and he believes that by walling themselves off as they can and preserving a hint of what used to be, that maybe God will make things better for them. But as Lauren grows up, she finds her dad's way of thinking to be ignorant of the reality of how bad things are. He's too bent on going back in time to when things made more sense, to when things felt like they were there. And the more Lauren thinks about her dad's God, she thinks, what if God is something else altogether? One day, Lauren's town is attacked by a gang of pyromaniacs who burn the whole thing to the ground. Lauren flees with some neighbors, but tragically loses her family to the fire. She sets out with some others for Northern California to find some remote land to settle on and start a new community. Lauren is bent on finding new ways to talk about God and to be in community with others that doesn't look back on the crumbling structures of society, but rather dares to question what can rise from the ashes. 
as she pursues this calling, she develops a new language to talk about God and the world that provides people peace with where things are. They're not there yet and hope that things can actually be transformed. She writes poems that talk about how God is identified with change and how people must partner with God in creating something new. One says, all that you touch, you change. All that you change, changes you. The only lasting truth is change. God is change. The parable of the sower is an incredible story of creativity and resilience. The further, the further Lauren steps into the scariness of something new, the more peace she finds in the relationships she makes and the small signs of transformation. Eventually, she finds a way to bring lasting change and healing in her world finally moving out of its brokenness. The world isn't there yet, but Lauren's story ends with hope that one day it might be. Our passage in Matthew ends with a beautiful promise. Come to me, all you that are weary, and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus' invitation is inspirational, but I've always found strange how he promises a light burden. Wouldn't no burden be lighter? Can't Jesus bring us to a place where burdens are no more? Lauren's story in the parable of the sower helps me understand the ease and peace that Jesus talks about here. She finds freedom in the yoke she takes on when she sets out to do something new. She's scared, but she's free to create with God something different and more whole. This path requires a lot of work, and there are moments when Lauren desperately asks, are we there yet? But she realizes that no, she's not. She'll never be. And this simple truth somehow provides a deep rest for her soul. Theologian Monica Coleman actually talks about this book and connects the peace that she sees in Parable of the Sower with the peace Jesus talks about. She describes peace this way. Peace sustains us in the process of becoming. Peace is not ignoring the reality of the world. Rather, it prevents us from seeing the world as narrowly as we otherwise might. Peace is the gift from God that allows us to trust in the process. God urges us towards harmony in the process. God grants us peace. We are in the process of becoming. We are not there yet as desperately as we want to be. We have things in our personal lives for which we want healing and change, broken relationships, hurting bodies, anxiety in a world filled with chaos and uncertainty. And then we look up and see the climbing statistics of COVID-19 cases, and we learn more stories and hear more names of black people murdered by police, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Cameron Lamb, Elijah McLean. And our country may not bear the same statistics of the Roman Empire, but one in eight people still live below the poverty line here in the USA. And we don't need the statistics to remind us of how many others struggle to eat and survive across the globe. We are not there yet, and we won't be. Not quickly. But we can come to Christ and give Christ our burden of needing to be there. We can be willing to be seen as infants, surrendering our wisdom and intelligence. And we can be born again into something more vulnerable and dangerous to systems that oppress and harm others. And when we're willing to let go of wanting to be there, 
when we're willing to repent, to change our ways, and to speak up and fight for changes in the rules of society, God's peace will guide us, work in and with and through us. And as we commit to partnering with God in creative transformation, we will find that indeed the yoke is easy and the burden is light. At the end of Parable of the Sower, Lauren Olamina is having a conversation with her husband who loves her deeply, but is skeptical that society is really salvageable at all like she believes. He argues with her, trying to coax her into his own pessimism, saying he wishes he could believe like she does. Instead of arguing back, she simply embraces him and says, we've got work to do.